It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast. This season of 12 episodes is devoted to the wild wonders of water. And in this episode nine, we go in search of one of Britain's strangest aquatic creatures, the serpent-like eel. Few other animals' life cycles are so shrouded in mystery as this extraordinary fish. And in recent decades, alarm bells have been sounded due to its precipitous decline in numbers. However, things have been looking brighter in the last couple of years, in part due to the wonderful work of the Sustainable Eel Group. We sent our own Annabelle Ross to wade into the floodwaters in the River Severn near Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire to meet Andrew Kerr of the Sustainable Eel Group to learn more about the eel's strange story and its brighter future. Plus, later we hear from fabulous folk singer Kitty McFarlane and delve once again into the podcast postbag. The eel, uh, the European eel as it's correctly called, is one species for the whole of Europe and North Africa. And um, it's been very, very important to human life. Um, And certainly a thousand years ago, you wouldn't survive a winter without eating them. It was the food of everybody. Um, And what we've seen is as as, as mankind, humankind, has, has engineered the landscape... Um, we've really seen eel populations crash from an incredible abundance to, yeah, they're still abundant. They're still 1.3 billion a year arriving on the Atlantic currents to Europe. But 50 years ago, there'd have been 10 times that number. And we've no idea what it might have been 100 years ago or indeed 1,000 years ago. So our organisation is all about trying to help the eel recover And we do this by getting the best scientists, the best conservationists and the the leaders of the stewardship role that the sector, the industry, the fishery plays. And we bring them all together uh, on a European scale to work on the eel recovery issue. Um, Before you carry on, I think we might want to talk about where we are because we look like we're walking into a, into a, 
a big um, big flood. Where, where are we? Okay, we, we are um, um, down on the River Severn in the West Country. We're actually walking across a floodplain between the, the Stratford Avon and the River Severn itself. And uh, this is a, a very, yeah, floodplains are a, a traditional form of, of river management. Um, the water releases all the great nutrients into the, into the soils and makes them incredibly fertile. But here we are in February, um, after a lot of rain, and the floodplain is doing its traditional job <laughs> of absorbing a lot of water and uh, frustrating our one kilometre walk from the edge of Tewkesbury um, across the fields to see one of the largest eel passes um, that exists in Britain. Aha. Uh -huh. So, gosh, it's getting quite deep. Um, <laughs> we're going to be all right, aren't we? Hmm? I was worried it was going to be a couple of feet deep all the way. When we have gone round in a huge... No, we're OK. I think we'll be all right. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit shorter than you, but I think we'll survive. I knew and are leaking already. Oh, no. <laughs> um, we wouldn't find any... You wouldn't see any eels in the flood plains um yes uh, uh, yes and i mean it's february now um it's hopefully getting warmer um we know literally a billion eels have already arrived in the bay of biscay i think that's a bit deeper it no, is that. is that all right Yeah, we, we know that something like a billion have already arrived in the Bay of Biscay and have been caught on the great French rivers, the Loire, the Vilaine, the Adore, the Gironde. There have been a lot this year, and um, they tend to come north as the waters get warmer. So they are not active unless the river temperature is about six, seven, eight degrees. They don't like the cold, they just hibernate. So, so to your question, will they be here now? Yeah, I expect they're in the river, but, but very small numbers. They tend to, to get a huge concentration, uh, probably in a month's time or so. As the daffodils come out, that's when we see the eels. <laughs> How beautiful. <laughs> and um, um, so we might see, we might be lucky today. Um, I would be very surprised. Uh, we've had no reports of them in the, in the river yet, but they'll be there in small numbers. You tend to only hear of them when they are in huge numbers. Okay, so and small numbers and small in size as well. Or oh, oh yes, I mean we're talking about the the annual glass eel recruitment. They arrive as these little transparent, three or four inches long, uh, snake-like creatures. And then they, they get into our fresh waters and they try and go upstream. But the first thing they've got to do is go through a metamorphosis from this transparent glass eel into a pigmented elva. And they like to do that in wetlands. And one of the problems with our rivers is they're so barricaded that the glass eels can't get into the wetlands to make this metamorphosis. Oh. 
the effect of not being able to get into the wetlands is an incredible mortality. Many scientists talk about 90% of them dying, um, failing to make this transition from glass eel to elva. Um, and so this is why you, your sustainable eel group, are putting in as many eel passes as possible. Is that part of the solution? Yes, it's, it's not really us so much. There are wonderful NGOs uh, like the Rivers Trusts and the Wildlife Trusts, uh -huh. RSPB, and of course the Environment Agency itself that are putting in these eel passes. Gosh, it's really windy, isn't it? We're just right out in the middle of this flat plain. And I hope the sound is good enough. But is the, is the problem that there aren't enough of these passes or, or too many barricades going, or sort of both? Yes, I mean, you can't um, imagine that in a, in, a, in a year or two you can correct the engineering mess, if that's the right word, <laughs> of hundreds of years. You can't put 200 years of river engineering and water management right in a single budget cycle. It's going to take us tens of years to actually enable the migration to happen at anything like a sustain well anything like a, uh, the extent that it needs to be and, it, and it's not just here in the UK because it's one genetic population they have got to be able to migrate up the rivers throughout their natural range i.e. throughout the whole of Europe and North Africa a million obstructions to solve uh, oh okay yeah and what are they doing going up to these, going up these rivers? Why do they have to... Because I know a bit about eels, having researched them, that they... that we think that they reproduce when they go back to the Sargasso Sea. So they're not going up these rivers to find sort of spawning grounds, are they? What, no, are, they, what are they doing? You're absolutely right. It's, uh, in that respect, it's the opposite to the salmon. They're coming into the rivers to find perfect habitat to feed up maybe over 10 or 20 years before then making the return journey to breed in the Sargasso Sea, which is part of the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> That's why it's such a mystery. <laughs> yep, the, the, the Bermuda Triangle just starts the whole story off <laughs> and it is mysterious from then onwards. I like the idea of eels being quite mysterious, but so they're, okay, so they're building their, they're building their bodies, they're bodybuilding in the rivers. Yeah, they eat um, all sorts of things from uh, insect eggs, gnats, um, or larvae of mosquitoes, um, other fish eggs. They really clean up the river. They eat everything and slowly put on weight. In the winter, if it's cold, they, uh, of course, are hibernating. So um, they go to sleep in November. They reverse back into a sort of little hollow on the side of the river and, and literally hibernate all winter. And uh, then when they start again, they spend the first few weeks of feeding just to put back the weight that they've lost. So it's a, it's a slow process. In the far north of Europe, like Sweden, they may take 30 or 40 years to grow up. 
Um, in this country, it's more like 10 to 15 years. But in a hot Mediterranean country like Portugal, in a lagoon by the sea, they'll grow up in three years or less. Oh, grow up. So what size, roughly, are we talking about when they're from, let's say, from the size of a glass eel to a fully grown eel? Um, well, I'll stay, I'll stay in, uh, in, in feet. Um, males reach about a foot long uh, uh, and then are ready to start the return journey. A female is probably three or four times as big by weight and two or three times by length. And they take another third of time to sort of grow up. So they take longer. Isn't that quite unusual for the female to be larger than the male? Yep, um, a female um, is carrying roughly a million eggs a kilo. And a big female will be three kilos in weight. So carrying three million eggs. Oh and this is why killing an eel at its mature life stage is not killing one eel. That eel that's lived for 10 or 20 years and is carrying all those eggs is actually symbolic of what you're killing. If you kill that, you're in effect killing 20, well, two, well a million eggs a kilo, so you're killing two or three million eggs at that moment. So it's the wrong moment in the cycle of eel to, to, to have mortality. Oh dear. Who put this eel pass in that we're trying to find? Well, it's on land belonging to the Canal and Rivers Trust. Um, but the Environment Agency have been heavily involved, um, as has Seven Rivers Trust. Um, yeah, lots of encouragement from lots of people to, to get it put in place. Um, we're actually just walking to, to where I think I can see people fishing, um, on the edge of the Seven. Um, yeah, this is a pool, a huge pool below the weir at Lower Load. So it's a very natural concentration point. And, of course, the salmon fishing season has started. So, yeah, this will be salmon fishers. They're fishing for salmon here? Yeah. yeah. That's, I'm quite excited about that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they're using a, a spinning technique, oh, which is got, what uh, you would expect okay. in, uh, in, in, in this volume of water. Yeah, it's a lot of water in the river, as you'd expect, having had so much in Wales this last week. Oh, OK. Or the last few weeks. It's all and, coming, uh, coming down can't wait to see the river. Oh, I really hope they catch a salmon whilst we're here. Hello. Don't mind us, please. Yeah. Um, so, have you had any luck? No, this is, we, we've just, just started. a couple of hours, but yeah. this is our second day. Well, um, I've been, I've done quite a lot of salmon fishing, but on a fly. Really? Yeah. yeah. Not got very many, though. Have you not? They're elusive, aren't they? Very, yes. <laughs> 10 or 11 last year. Yeah, so. Did you? Did you? And you can keep them? Are you allowed to keep them? No. No, all of them go back in? All of them go back in, especially after, well, even after June the 16th now, so... We'll, we'll, we'll find a spot anywhere here that you want to talk about. OK. The weir, because it's the water's so full... Oh, we can't see it? You can't see it. It's oh. under the water. You've got <laughs> you know, high tide, huge amount of water coming down. And actually, if the eels were coming through, they would be able to go over. But it's before the season starts, so... <laughs> OK, um, but, well, we'll pretend we can see it. It goes down here. But you can't see it. He, 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 he part of the eel well, group. He, well, he does a lot of work for UK glass eels at Gloucester. Oh, right. And uh, very, very much involved in eel recovery work. Oh. Yeah. 
Oh, well, that's good to bump into you. A real eel fisherman, a real elverman. Do you fish for, for eel here? Get, go and get him, a real elverman. Uh, a real, this is a real elverman. Are you called an elverman? Oh, well, yeah, maybe an elverman, yeah, or a glass eel fisher or something along those lines. But... Is it important to, to fish for them when they are elvers or glass, not adults? Well, we only fish for them when they're glass eels because they're obviously, you know, between February and, and May, they're kind of migrating up the Severn, so that's why we're fishing in that period for those, you know, for, for that particular size eel. Because um, You're fishing for them now? No, the season doesn't start until f- the 1st of March, isn't it, Andrew? Oh, right. Correct. So. Sorry, what's your name? My name's Jake. Oh, hi, Jake. Hi, Jake. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, anyway, our licences are in the... They've been paid for, um, despite there's no market for them. But we'll see what we can see what we can do. Whether no market for the glass eels. No market. Well, it's closed, isn't it, Andrew? Now, because the eel is listed at CITES, yeah. it's controlled by this international treaty. And when Britain left the EU, um, the the treaty uh, in effect took over, and uh, each country has to agree to trade. And the UK Scientific Authority produced a non-detriment finding to enable trade to continue. But that non-detriment finding was not accepted by the EU's equivalent in Brussels, called the Scientific Review Group. That means something like two to three hundred glass eel fishermen on the Severn and Parrot now have no trade. And what's even more galling is 70% of what they caught was used for repopulating the rivers and wetlands of Europe, which don't get a natural migration. So this is this is a major hole in our conservation program. Yeah, we kind of it isn't like the French fishery where they where they're trawling or anything. It's a, it is a hand net fishery. You're doing it from a boat or from the bank? From the bank. You're putting a net into the water from the bank just to... from from the bank. Yep. The legal um, rules that seems, make a That boat, seems fair, in a way. It's to give the eel more chance. Yeah. Um, so you could do it from a boat, but the, the bank is the rules. And it's all about having a method of fishing that's very, very sensitive. You can't catch too many if you fish in such an inefficient manner. We reckon 100 million come into the seven system every year. And if, well, if 20 million are caught, we'd be amazed. 10 to 15% 10 is a good guess as to what is caught. And that's okay. Totally sustainable. That's sustainable. Um, and so how, each time with the net, I'm sorry, I'm trying to sort of picture it because I don't know anything about it. How many would you get in one net? What's the sort of roughly how many you get in one net? Um, uh, um, some nights, maybe one or two. Yeah. Other nights, in, in you know, for example, one night last year we caught a hundred kilos almost in one night. Oh, okay. That's that, three hundred million eels. Okay, that really does. Yes, okay. That, sorry, hang on. Three, three million. Three, three uh, million. How many kilos? Hundred kilos. Hundred kilos. So it's every every kilo. Four hundred thousand. Yeah. So do the maths. Can't do it in the cold wind. A hundred kilos in a night. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. A million is three hundred kilos. So this is three or four hundred thousand in a night. Yeah, that's quite exciting though. So we're standing where the eel pass is built. So if the eel came up now, they wouldn't need the eel pass. 
Right, no. so they would just carry on yeah. swimming up. Yeah. So it's only when it gets a bit low, or is this very high today? Very, very high. Oh, right. I mean, it's only over... Th- this is called topping. Yeah. And it only tops a couple of a percent of the time in a year. Oh. So you've arrived at a time when it's topped, i.e. a fraction of a percent of the time in the year when this happens. That was why I was looking at the tide times this morning. Uh, and I thought we'd be all right. But there's so much water coming down. OK, well, if, yeah. we came to see the eel pass, but we don't have to see it. We know where they... And so where this eel pass is now, how many... What happens next? when they? Okay. What's the next barrier after here? Do you know? Yeah. Going up, up the let seven. Me, let me put it in context here. So when we were walking across the Avon, the Stanford Pit Bridge over there before walking across the field. I was talking then about the Victorians and how they wanted to make the Seven and Avon more navigable. So they spent Trade. a fortune in creating these navigation weirs. And this is the lowest one. And there's actually a pass. The boats would go round where those fencing is through this setup here and then out the other side. But this barrier was uh, uh, the first of, of, of major, major barrier to fish migration that was put in on the Severn. And we know from uh, newspaper cuttings that when this one went in, um, a fish called uh, an Alice Chad um, that used to go all the way up the river, and funny enough there was a major soap-making industry on the back of it, uh, stopped overnight because this barrier went in. And, um, the similar, Alice Chad. The Chad, yeah. Shad. Shad. S H A D. Shad. And um, because of that fish, uh, and the eel is benefiting it from it, from it um, the Seven Rivers Trust and a partnership of, of others, including the Canal and the Rivers Trust uh, uh, and the Environment Agency, have won 20 something million to create substantial fish passes, all fish, all types of fish bars for six of, six of these major barriers between here and Worcester and beyond Worcester. And um, this will enable the natural migration to return. For eel and salmon yes. and Alice shad yeah. and what, what... Those are the principal ones. The main but, ones. but all, all freshwater fish move yeah. to feed, to breed. Mm. It, 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 what we've done with our one million barriers across Europe is we've compartmentalised them into sort of swimming pools and we've broken up their natural patterns of that, life. You, that was the Victorians who started that? It started in... Well, it goes right back to human engineering of mills yeah. for, for thousands of years. But it got, it got really big in the 20th century. Every river got engineered and engineered and engineered. And only now are we starting to realise how much damage we've done. And the key statistic for it, just to bring it to that, WWF do a State of the Planet report. And... The ecosystem that's had the most destruction uh, isn't your tropical jungles and, and so on. It's actually the fresh waters of Europe. And in their data, uh, uh, the, the habitat loss is so great that the migratory fish have fallen, on average, 93% of their population. And that is exactly where eel is. Eel is just an indicator for all freshwater fish and the tragedy of what we've done to our rivers and wetlands of Europe.
pourings of water, the river quaking and rucking as it accelerates over the concrete sluice, upswellings carrying the stain of its breath. I climb down to stand at the edge where the water slides, a sheet of melting glass, and see eels, six-inch slivers of darkness, mouths clamped to the concrete. Every few seconds one fires upstream, a writhing cord, thrashing in the inch-deep current, hovers on the rim before it's flung back, a loose thread gone in the power surge. Instinct keeps them coming, always more, climbing on each other's backs, catapulting themselves into the head-on collision of water. How many make it in an hour? I counted only one large and pale-bellied, that somehow snaked itself across a piece of hardly wet concrete and was gone, loosed at the river's head. Next day most have disappeared, the few that are left flagging in the piling current, thin fuses burning out. That was Eels by Hugh Dunkerley. With thanks to Hugh and to Guillemot Press for allowing us to use this lovely poem in the podcast. The poem was read by Hannah Tribe. The Sustainable Eel Group, and, you know, how long has that been around? Well, we started uh, uh, in 2010, so we've only been going 10 years. Yeah. But eel has been really what you might call the, the poor man's fish. Um, salmon conservation, the king of fish, has been around for uh, several hundred years. Organisations like the Tweed Foundation, which are, are part of the Rivers Trust, they go back. I think almost a couple of hundred years. Oh, because it was the rich man's sport. Yeah, it was rich man's sport. That's right, and and that. So there was money to put behind it. There was money to put behind it. Eel is the poor man's fish in a sense, but then we've had this incredible role reversal now, because of salmon farming. Salmon has become the food of everyone. And anyone, eel, anyone can bite an and eel. eel is the smoked eel. It's, it's deli- incredibly expensive. It's a delicacy. It's a delicacy. It's an aphrodisiac, according to the Chinese. And the oh, sums of never, money yeah. parted for it yeah. are ridiculous. Oh, well, that's never a good thing, I think. No. I think that's never good. You say that um, the eel population has um, decreased. Did you say it's decreased by 93%? Yes, that, that 93% is the figure that WWF have come up with for migratory fish in Europe. And that matches the eel. Um, the thing about the eel is it's been so incredibly abundant. Um, so we calculate that something like one to two billion come into the, the rivers of Europe each year. But if we go back 50 years, that's more like 10 billion. So, more, maybe. Yeah, more, maybe. So although it's still very abundant... And you know, that fisherman there talking about catching a hundred kilos. I was going to say they're night. still allowed to keep to yeah, catch them. That's three hundred thousand fish in one night. So it doesn't quite make sense when you think of it in terms of outright population. The only reason it's critically endangered is the is the scale of the collapse and the speed of the collapse. In absolute numbers, it's still one of the most common and abundant fish of Europe. And do we do do we do we want to tre- treasure eel in our natural world? Are they Indeed. important? Yeah, they play, play a huge part in the, the natural ecosystem, and taking them out means all sorts of food chains get broken and it all gets disrupted. Um, no, the eel is is a is a very crucial species for um, 
uh, yeah, for, for the natural world. Of course, there are those who, who say it can deal with things like the signal crayfish, this unwanted American crayfish that's chased out yeah. and killed our freshwater. Um, abundance of eel um, can prey on them and get their numbers right down. These are the, the, the so these are Florida ones that are yes. ki- killing our freshwater crayfish. Yes, that's right. And the eel will eat a chase them out or eat them eat, eat, eat them at various life stages yeah. and keep their numbers down okay good so we love the eel yes we love the eel <laughs> and um have you ever this is a bit of a strange question have you ever swung with and seen an eel in a river have you ever uh yeah you i have i've never personally swum with eels um uh but yeah i have a colleague um uh, who who has um, she's done it with eels in Indonesia, and uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah. You're the chairman of the, the Sustainable Eel Group, which actually I think is based in, is it based in Belgium? Yeah, we have our, our head office in Brussels, oh. but actually it's the team of people spread throughout Europe okay. who, are, who are working on it. And so you say it's been going for 10 years, um, and so are your sustainability programmes making any difference? Very good question. Um, Measuring eel populations is incredibly difficult and the scientists have have come up with a proxy measure because it's so difficult and even that proxy measure is far from from very accurate and you certainly need to take readings um, progressively and and put them together in order to get a a picture but it's called the glass eel index and um, Uh, measurements are taken from about 50 places every year uh, across Europe and that index went down about 15% a year every year 1980-2010. In comes the EU regulation 2007, SEG gets going 2010, Sustainable Sustainable Yield Group wanting to make the EU regulation work. And what we've now had is 10 years of an improving situation. The glass eel index is no longer declining. We're getting year-to-year increases. Not always upwards, but we're getting from that low point, we are getting increases. So the rot, the 30-year decline, has been stopped. How did you, where's the success come from? There are lots of actions that are going on, um, literally thousands and thousands. Um, Different countries have decided to take different actions according to the rivers and the habitats and the cultures and traditions of those countries. So in Britain, we have gone for unblocking the migration pathways and building the eel passes. And something like a thousand of those have gone in. But SEG and its members move each year, catch and move each year, over 50 million glass eels from where they're super abundant to be released into rivers and wetlands all over Europe where the natural migration fails. So that's another measure. But because an eel takes so long to grow up, we can't tell the effect of that Mm. for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So it takes a long time. So, yeah, there there are lots of measures going on, um, controlling the fishing. One of of our biggest problems has been trafficking. Mm. And this has become the biggest wildlife crime on the planet for a living creature. And something like 300 million glass eels have been illegally 
tin suitcases by human passengers and, and taken to the eel farms of China. Uh, this is a trade worth something like three billion pounds a year. And we've really been working on this. And for the last four years, literally 100 people a year have been arrested. And slowly we're getting on top of this crime. And the reports last year suggested it was running at maybe a quarter of what it was. And then the season we're in now, um, I'm very happy to say even more extensive operations of control have happened. And um, there have been more arrests. And people have, has, have come to court in the last 12 months. Um, the biggest, the biggest uh, uh, punishment has been five years imprisonment. Gosh, that's that's good. Well, that's good. But could you, the the the, the sort of life cycle of a, of a of an eel is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Oh. Could you tell us about yes, the life cycle? Yes, I can. Um, someone once said to me, "The eel is a weird fish." I immediately wanted to defend it, <laughs> but actually, that person was right. It's a really weird fish. Um, its, its life cycle is still a mystery today. Um, mankind, humankind, has never witnessed it breeding in the wild. We know roughly where it takes place by catching the smallest larvae. And um, it's identified as the Sargasso Sea, which is at the bottom of the Bermuda Triangle. Quite what happens there <laughs> is, a, is a wonderful mystery. They catch these ocean currents... Uh, that head towards Europe, and that's their free ride. Eels are always looking for a free ride. <laughs> and they arrive a couple of years later on the west-flowing rivers of Europe, particularly the Bay of Biscay. Now, where we are now is the northernmost concentration. So the, the greater River Severn, the Severn and the Parrot, the Bristol Channel, something like 100 million will come into this river system each year. And our 300 hand-net fishermen, not allowed in their boats, <laughs> highly controlled, uh, will catch 10 or 15%, something like that. And 70% of what they catch is relocated to the rivers and wetlands of Europe. And the small chunk goes into eel farms for growing on for human consumption. Oh, I see. Okay, so eel that we buy in the shop, smoked eel, is from a farm. Indeed, yeah. And you can now buy eel um, that's come through our endorsed, independently assessed supply chain, and you can buy it with confidence, knowing that it's been caught by responsible people, um, and it's part of our whole programme to achieve sustainability, which will take us a few more years, but we're well on the journey. So do some of the profits from buying the people who buy the, the smoked eel, do they go back into the sustainable? Yes, they do. Um, the biggest market is the Netherlands, where um, they have, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably 50-60% of the total European market. And they love smoked eel in particular. And there a euro a kilo goes into the eel stewardship fund. And that pays for restocking. It pays for catching big, big silver eels that are stuck 
on the freshwater side of the dikes and then caught and lifted over and released the other side. <laughs> it pays for eel research. It's paid for the development of the SEG standard, which the fishermen and the farms and the smokehouses all now use. So yes, if you eat eel that's, that's got uh, and has come through the SEG supply chain, you are contributing to the recovery. But also with the life cycle, you only got as far as them arriving here. (laughs) (laughs) I think they've got a few more years after that. You're quite right. They have a few (laughs) more years. Um, So they're trying to get into into freshwater to to feed up and so they can make the return journey. Now, eels, as always, they break all the rules. Some stay in the estuary. Some go up into freshwater and then go back to the estuary. Some go into freshwater and stay in freshwater. And some go to the top of the river. So they, they move around looking for some imagined security to feed and, and prosper. Um, now eels are, are, are most intriguing creatures. Um, in this country, if we say they live, they, they occupy space in our rivers for 10 or 15 years, somewhere around year five, they decide whether they want to be girls or boys. And nobody quite knows what happens or how, but basically, if you get lots and lots of eels, they tend to be 80-20 male. And if you get few eels, they tend to choose to be female. So we find... Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's a survival strategy for the eel, built up over the 100 million years that it's been doing this mad life cycle. Um, So if you're on the west side of Britain particularly the big Bristol Channel, it's predominantly male, the fish. But go to the East Coast, doesn't get a huge natural recruitment of glass eels, it gets a trickle. And there you have 80-20% female. Gosh, how fascinating that it's such a mysterious... Oh, fish. Yeah. Is it a fish? It is a fish, I was yeah. going to say, sorry, yes, a fish. So, having got into the rivers and not been eaten by zanders or pike or perch or or otters, or herons, or bittens, um, it, it, it then is ready to make its return journey. It really is the food of everything. So we've been trying to study the return journey and putting satellite tags on them. And it's quite extraordinary what we've learned. In fact, it's another one of these extraordinary eel myths. They head out to the continental shelf where it gets deep and then every day they drop down in daylight up to a thousand meters that's deeper than a nuclear submarine can dive and every night they come back up to the surface and we don't know really why they do it we have hypotheses but we don't know why they do this so not only is it four thousand miles back to the sargasso sea via the azores it's also up and down so it's double, at least double. It's extraordinary, yes. And, sorry, did you, did you say, when they're back, they're usually 20 or 30 years old when they're heading back? Well, from northern Europe, they'll be 20 to 30 years old. Yeah. From, should we say, England, um, a, a female might be 12, 15, something like that. A male might be a little bit younger because they go back when they're smaller. And then right down into Portugal... Um, as I said earlier, um, 29 months, and they're mostly male. They're in a lagoon by the sea. They've never stopped feeding. They haven't hibernated in the winter. They've grown rapidly. So it's um, more about the size rather than the age. 
yes, it's all about food and, and availability yeah. and how quickly they grow. Yeah. So what, by the time that, that they're they're sort of a, um, a foot, did you say a foot? The males. Male will be a good foot. Yes, that's yeah. right. And the female will be twice or three times that length and much much fatter. But so a male yeah. might be a sort of inch across. Yes, a bit more than that. A bit inch and a half, no. and a female four or five inches yes, across. Can easily get that big. And then what happens? Well, we don't know. We the tags have all fallen off. Uh. <laughs> and we have no knowledge of where they go beyond the Azores. But do listen out, because there are some studies going on which may tell us a little bit more about life after the Azores. Oh, very good. I we'll wait and see. Um, so my final question was, if we wanted to see eel on River Severn, how would we go about it and when? <laughs> well, you... To see eels in any quantity, you'd need to come out with a fisherman and watch the glass eels being caught. Okay. And if you get the night right, full moon, warm water, you might see 100,000 in, in a few minutes. So if you came down to an eel pass or a bit on the river where they do fish, you could just sort of hang about and hope that you might see them or, or would, it be, would they ask you to leave? Yeah. I've seen them in adults form in chalk stream rivers. So if you want to see an eel, go to a southern England chalk stream and, and, and look. Um, they tend to be active at night, so maybe dawn and dusk. But I've seen them in daylight. A full moon and a chalk stream. <laughs> full moon for the glass eels and a chalk stream for, for the yellow and silver. OK. Thank you um, very much for today, Andrew. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you. And that was the amazing story of the European eel. Thank you to Andrew Kerr and Annabelle Ross for that lovely adventure on the River Severn. It's an insight into a really unusual and not very well-known fish. And a reminder that even in Britain, where we think we know everything, there are still fantastic mysteries hidden beneath the surface. So brilliant. But we couldn't leave it there. And Andrew suggested that the final fitting tribute to the eel should come from his friend, the folk singer Kitty McFarlane. Kitty has recorded a song called Glass Eel on her album, Namer of Clouds, and she and her record company, Navigator, have kindly allowed us to include it here. Who was there when Pangea split? Who saw borders break and continents drift With shifting rock and heat of time Cleft plates apart, pushed ice to brine The trade winds and the westerlies The push and pull of the gyre The glass eel chasing estuaries to mud and mire And as the leaves are doomed to bruise And the fruit is bound for falling We are all compelled to move Our busy skies and racing ocean Our strange and heady motion Who saw the muddy eddies and the sediment And the 
weathered cliffs forging monuments To the labyrinths that the rivers fill The days disrupt and the nights distill The trade winds and the westerlies The push and pull of the gyre The glass eel chasing estuaries To ford and fen to mud and mire And as the leaves are doomed to bruise And the fruit is bound for falling We are all compelled to move Our busy skies and racing ocean Our strange and heady motion We are all compelled to move While roaming cliff and waning moon Keep time For the tiny travellers on ocean currents Or a desperate flight from the east The steady shifting of populations on McFarlane for gracing our podcast with her beautiful song Glass Eel, a special celebration of an extraordinary creature. So here we are. I'm back in the podcast studio with my lovely friends Hannah and Jack, without whom this podcast wouldn't exist. Uh, guys, it's spring. It's sunny today. I've actually had warmth on my face. How has it been for you both? It's lovely. Really nice day. No surprise. I, I so, something sort of just happened. I feel like last couple of weeks. It's been getting dark still quite early. And even now it's just suddenly like the nights of later on and everything's brightened up and flowers have come out. It's it's all just suddenly sprung upon us, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> Spring has sprung, the grass is raised. 
Hannah, have you seen any signs of spring down in the dark depths of Gower? Well, the most obvious sign of spring for me is that I have decided that I am not going to wear trousers until October. Just dresses and shorts from now on. I've gone quite early. I'm probably going to regret it. But something so freeing about being outdoors and feeling that like it's not warm enough really yet, but the air on your skin, just getting out. There'll be there'll be letters to the Times saying Hannah has been spotted not wearing trousers. <laughs> um, now we just await the cuckoo <laughs> for our spring to be announced. Yeah, I've seen um, daffodils out, celandines in the hedgerows around here, not up on the hills, but just down down in the sort of lowlands where it's a bit warmer, and the birds are singing more than ever. I did manage to get out this morning to record a podcast on the Monmouth Brecon Canal, so it'd be one of the last in this watery season. And lo and behold, I heard a chiff-chaff. Now, it is the 26th of February today. We're recording this, so it'll, this, this, when, you, when this goes out, this will be a little bit into early March. But I've never heard a chiff-chaff in February before. And I've noticed a few other reports around the place of chiff-chaffs. So whether that's chiff-chaffs are overwintering in Britain or these are early migrants, it's hard to say. But maybe they're changing their behaviour. But without further ado, it's time to have a little delve into the podcast postback. Um, Jack, I think you could kick us off. Yes, well, I have a sound of the week from Mel Heseltine Wells, and it's all the way from Dubai. And let's just give it a listen. Well, thank you, Mel. That's great. Mel says that she uh, listens to the podcast while out running and recorded this. Um, there are some sort of familiar pigeony sounds there, like a wood pigeon, but some of the other songs in the background are I don't recognise. So I really love hearing these sort of foreign soundscapes and comparing them with our own spring. And Hannah, how about you? Have you got anything to share with us? I have another letter from the Northern Hemisphere from Nicola Pitchford in San Rafael in California and she says that she's very much enjoying listening to the podcast as she hangs out her Sunday washing in the California sun. How strange though to be hearing about floods when here just north of San Francisco our winter rains have failed and we're facing drought. Many of our seasonal hill streams that gush in the winter and spring and make beautiful short-lived waterfalls have never started running this year. I've never known voluntary water restrictions to go into place so early in the year, and I fear for summer. Nevertheless, birds are singing, and the hills, for now, are clothed in their spring emerald. So it's a lovely letter. It's sort of ominous, but poetic. Well, I like her note of hope at the end, because it was very ominous. Um, yes, California's had its had some really tough times last year, I don't know if you remember the wildfires it had after long periods of drought. And it sounds like if, you, if they haven't had their winter rains, they could well be looking forward to that again, which, well, it's just awful. Climate change in reality. But as she says, there is hope and the birds are singing. Spring is here. So, you know, so however we're feeling, there is always something to lift the spirits. And um, well, fingers crossed to everyone in California. And thank you so much for that lovely letter. So I have a couple of clarifications and corrections to make. Uh, 
And one is from, I think it was last week or the week before, where we had a lovely email from Craig Campbell talking about listening to my journey to the Holy Well in episode two of this series. And he was listening to it and enjoying it while gardening. Um, he is a gardener, so he was working in a customer's garden and it made his job easier and quicker, which is lovely to hear. But Craig also has a claim on being long-distance listener of the week because he was, we didn't say that he's from Ashgrove in Queensland, Australia. So Craig, you're definitely on our list for long-distance listener of this week. My other correction is back in summer, I went to the Menai Straits and did a podcast walking around some dunes and marshlands and I came across a really beautiful and strange butterfly that I hadn't seen before. So I looked it up, I took a photo, looked it up, and it said pearl-bordered fritillary. So I identified it as a pearl-bordered fritillary, but they don't exist in that part of Wales. So actually it's a small pearl-bordered fritillary. So and I did get lots of people um, getting in touch to say, no, 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 that's not right. I'm making that correction now. Well, as we've said, spring is here, and I'm sure you guys have got lots of lovely things you're planning. Hannah, spring's on the doorstep. What are you up to this week? I don't know how exciting it is, because it's the same place I've been in for the last year, but I will be doing some more sound escape recording this weekend, because there are so many more birds than there were three weeks ago, so more of that. Oh, that's brilliant. Yes, Hannah is hosting our five minutes sort of Friday sound escapes where we just offer a little bit of meditative sounds of nature before we head off to the weekend. So very short podcasts, just lovely little snippets of nature in the raw as it is now. Jack, how about you? What are you up to? Are you getting out? Trying to get out a bit more. And now there's that sort of light at the end of the tunnel with restrictions starting to ease and being able to see an extra person or so i'm i'm raring up to go when that finally happens and can go for a walk with someone (laughs) jack with all your lovely kit we're looking forward to your soundscapes too i know you love picking up all sorts of interesting sounds of of water oozing and (laughs) and can get away from a car that would be (laughs) well it just remains for me to say a huge thank you to everyone for listening and to Annabel Ross and Andrew Kerr for the lovely chat about eels earlier, and to Hannah and Jack for chatting with me now. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Bye.